Welcome to the Remote Working Podcast, brought to you by Cloudbase. Welcome to the Remote Working Podcast, a leadership edition. Today, we're joined by Dr. Neil Thompson, a former university professor who, for over 20 years, has been working as an independent writer, educator, and advisor. The focus of his work is human relations and well-being, and their implications for leadership and organizational effectiveness. He has over 40 books to his name and has been a speaker at conferences and seminars in 14 countries. Dr. Neil Thompson, welcome to the programme. Thanks, Dan. It's good to be with you. It's really good to be with you as well, albeit virtually and remotely, like pretty much all of our interviews this year. But of course, that's what we're here to talk about, remote working, of course. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what got you interested in remote or home-based working. Well, in recent years, in the training and consultancy work I was doing as part of my uh, mainstream job, I was aware that lots of organizations were switching to what they called agile working, which was seen as a way of cutting down on office costs. So instead of providing desks and office space for all their workers, they would have a limited number of desks and it's like first come first serve, the sort of hot desking as it's uh, known. And so that meant a lot of people were looking for other places to work, working at home, working in libraries, working in cafes, and so on and so forth. And what I was aware of was that there were some advantages to this, gave greater flexibility, not just to the organization as a whole, but also to the employees themselves. But there are also problems as well. There are also some challenges involved. For example, how do you keep a team together when the team is not in the same place? Yeah. So that got me interested because, you know, I've, for, for decades I've had an interest in how organizations work and how they don't work, how they go wrong. And, uh, and the key part of that, of course, is leadership. Sure. Um, and what I became aware of then was that this was an, an interesting set of challenges. Then, of course, what we've seen this year is with the pandemic that lots and lots of organizations have gone down this road of remote home-based working, which is a sort of the equivalent of agile working, with people being expected to work largely from home. And again, the same issues arise. There are some distinct advantages to, to that, but there are also some significant problems, especially if the situation is not very well handled from a leadership point of view. So that's yep. in, in a nutshell, that's how I got interested. I already was aware of agile working and the pandemic has really placed great emphasis on that. And it's funny, isn't it? Because I guess people were forced this year to make remote working part of their working life. But it's interesting that over a period of time, you've seen this trend of agile working, as you call it, start to come into, into full effect. Do you think that, you know, the pandemic has just accelerated that? Yeah, very, very much so. I think the agile working idea was something that was being adopted by a certain proportion of, of companies and local authorities and organizations like that. But it wasn't widespread. Whereas now with the pandemic, the idea of people working from home has become, well, basically the norm for a lot of people. They've had to make the adjustments. They've had to find a space to work, for example. You know, for some people, that's fine. They may actually have a home-based office. For other people, the best they can do is the dining room table or 
their, their laptop literally on their lap, you know, sitting on a, on a chair, on an armchair with a laptop on their, their knee. And that's what I mean about their advantages in terms of flexibility and so on, but there are also difficulties. Well, there certainly are. And, you know, it's a big adjustment, isn't it, for individuals that work within organisations that are, are normally used to going to the office that then suddenly, you know, have to find a space in their home environment to continue that work. But it's also a major challenge for employers and a major change for the way employers have been working, because particularly if you've got a leadership team that are used to having their team there on a daily basis, face to face, they've had some major adjustments to make. Do you think it's been very difficult for them? Yes, definitely. And a lot will depend on how things were working before the pandemic, in a sense. One of the issues that I discussed a lot in my training and consultancy work is what I call the balance of trust. And what I mean by that is you can't trust everybody all the time. You know, your life would be quite a problem if you you had 100% trust in everybody 100% of the, the, the time. You would be quite vulnerable if that was the case. But sure. equally, you can't go to the other extreme and trust nobody. You know, sometimes people will say this, I don't trust anybody. And of course they do. You have to, to get through uh, your, your life, to have a certain amount of trust. Yeah. Even a simple thing, like when you're driving the car, you have to trust other drivers, other drivers, other road users up to a point. So the key to it is not total trust or no trust, but finding the balance of trust. And that will, will change in different circumstances. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is that if you are a manager, you are a leader, and you can see your staff, you know, that you're in the same building, you're in the same workplace, then trusting your staff is relatively straightforward because you can see what they're doing. But if you are responsible for, say, 12 staff, and they are in 12 different locations, they're all working from home, for example, then to what extent do you actually trust them to get the job done? To what extent do you need to actually phone them or whatever to make sure that they're doing the job? Because for all you know, they they could be you know, watching daytime television when they should be doing their job. And my experience is that it can it can be a big problem if you don't get that balance of trust right, because most people can be relied upon to do the job when they're home based. And actually, there, there is research that suggests that productivity can actually go up if people work working at home. They've got fewer interruptions in terms you know, chatting to colleagues and that sort of thing, although there's a, there's a price to be paid for that in terms of you know, the lack of teamwork that can arise. But basically, it's about, it's about to what extent can leaders trust their staff and how do they do that? How do they make sure things are working out okay? It's, it's a great point you make, actually, and a lot of people that I know who have had to adjust to remote working over the course of this pandemic 2020 year, they've actually found themselves working much harder whilst working from home and later into the night or earlier in the morning because, you know, they're not so stressed out of the, after that early morning commute on the, on the train or in the car, you know, sitting in major traffic jams. They can have their morning cup of coffee, have some breakfast, you know, in a nice peaceful environment and crack on with a couple of hours work. And then again you know, into the evening when maybe if they've got kids, the kids have gone to bed, but they are able to take out those ordinary kind of stresses of the day-to-day -day life, those niggles, those things that really get to you like that, you know, the traffic on the M25, for example, or, you know, a packed train where you can't get a seat to be more productive in the workplace. And I guess as well, the other thing here is that employers have to learn to be quite trusting because if 
and employees doing that, working early mornings and later into the evening, then surely there has to be some give during the normal nine to five, allowing them to do other things like take the kids to school, for example. Yeah, very, very much so. Yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of research about flexible work and how um, useful that can be both for the individual and for the wider organisation. But you're right, it is very much about trust. One thing to be aware of is there is a general tendency that if people don't feel trusted, that will demotivate them. So if people feel, for example, that they're being micromanaged, you know, if their manager is on the phone to them regularly saying, have you done this, have you done that, then that's actually going to make them less productive. It's going to uh, demotivate them. It's going to make them possibly think about getting a job somewhere else so it could affect retention rates and so on and, and so forth. Sure. But what, what you'll get, of course, is in any situation involving trust is there will be a minority of people who will abuse that trust. If you take as a parallel example, you've got now lots of shops that sell newspapers where they have a trust system. You've probably seen these, you know, where you can just pick your newspaper up and put the money into a box. Yeah. yeah. And you're being trusted to do that. Now, of course, there's going to be a small proportion of people who will take the newspaper and put their hand over the box where it looks as though they're putting the money in, but they haven't actually done so. Yeah. But that's going to be a tiny, tiny proportion of people. Most people will be honest. They will appreciate being trusted and will respond accordingly. Now, the savings for an organization in terms of doing that far outweigh the cost of the odd newspaper that doesn't get paid for. Sure. So if we think of that as a parallel, you know, there will be the odd employee every now and again who will abuse the trust. But that is um, counterbalanced significantly by the benefits of actually trusting and empowering staff rather than micromanaging them. But it's very difficult, isn't it, for leaders to get that balance right. And you mentioned it earlier about the micromanagement and spending too much time following up with people, checking where people are. It's very difficult for leaders, particularly those that are used to having their staff, you know, in front of them. What advice would you give to a leader that is has had to, you know, is making that transition from a face-to-face environment with their team to a remote environment? I think for me, the starting point is to recognise that a key part of leadership is what I call culture shaping. The culture of an organization is very, very powerful. A culture is basically a set of habits of unwritten rules taken for granted assumptions. And what makes a culture very powerful is that most of the time people are unaware of it. Something that's influencing you without you knowing is potentially a very powerful influence. So what you get is what people tend to refer to as it's the way we do things around here. (laughs) So as you get a new employee joining the team, they very quickly become part of that culture. They very quickly start doing what everybody else does. And before long, they are inducted, as it were, into that culture, and they've forgotten this is a culture. It just seems that this is normality. This is what happens. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you've got a culture which is based on trust, then when it's translated from a office base to a remote home base, that trust can, can be transferred as well. But if you're operating on the basis of a culture where there's very little trust, then when uh, that gets translated into home-based working, that's where the trouble can start. Because uh, the lack of 
trust when people are in the same building is bad enough. But when people have the opportunity to abuse that trust or resent the lack of trust, then that can create all sorts of problems. So it may sound like a strange thing to say, but it's, it's basically about leaders being able to create and sustain a culture of trust. And it's got to be genuine trust as well. It's got to be authentic because if it's just like playing a game to make it look as though people are, are, are trusted, then that will people will see through that and it destroys the whole thing. So there, there has to be a culture of trust. You make a great point there, Neil, and employers have had a lot to contend with this year. You know, to change the culture of an organization is not something that generally happens overnight, but companies, leaders, they've had no choice but to change their culture in a lot of cases. And that's bigger than just a policy change or a certain way of working. That's a whole shift of sometimes values for, for, for a potential organization. Do you think this trend towards remote working is, is going to continue into 2021 and beyond? I think in the sort of short to medium term, it's definitely going to continue because for a lot of people, they, they have to continue. They, during the pandemic, uh, they, they have to find ways of working that are safe in terms of preventing the transmission of the virus. In the medium to long term, whether it persists, I think, will depend on whether or not people make a success of it. Unfortunately, what's very common in the management and leadership world is the influence of fashions. So somebody comes up with a new idea and then suddenly everybody's trying this new idea. It's not necessarily a good idea. It's not necessarily the appropriate idea for the circumstances where it becomes, hey, this is the latest thing, let's give it a go. And at the moment, the phase we're in is that this idea of, hey, we can save a fortune. We can close down our expensive offices and just have people working at home. Uh, easy, simple, straightforward, but it isn't. You know, that's gross oversimplification of some complex issues. For example, I'm aware of organizations that are looking at being largely home-based, their staff, because it's a lot cheaper that way. But have they considered, for example, the insurance implications, the health and safety implications? Have they considered a whole range of things, like staff well-being, for example? Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Pe people who are seeing one another on a daily basis, getting a lot of support from each other. What happens when, if it works out that way, staff may not see one another week in, week out, and they feel isolated, they feel abandoned. What impact might that have on people's mental health and well-being, uh, for example? So we're going to go through a, re a really fascinating period, I think, throughout uh, 2021 where you'll have organizations which will address these issues properly, will make a big success of it, and will be, in a sense, champions of remote working. But there are also going to be organizations, sadly, who are basically going to make a mess of this yeah. because they oversimplify it. They just see it as it's simple and straightforward. Instead of people coming into the office, they can work at home. They don't have the commute. So they'll put in extra effort and so on, all wonderful. We don't have to pay rent and lease costs and so on and so forth without considering the other side of the coin. You know, what price do you pay for that in terms of, as we're saying, the difficulties of leadership? How do you lead a team that's in 12 different places? And the, the well-being issues, the complicating factors around health and safety and so on. If somebody has an accident at home, what's the situation in terms of the organization's health and uh, safety responsibilities? If these things haven't been explored and thought through carefully, they can be a minefield. 
Absolutely right. And, uh, you know, and, and I think it's recognizing, isn't it, that you may need help sooner than you think in order to transition from a, a physical environment to either a, a hybrid hub and spoke kind of model or complete virtual solution. And that's, you know, when you recognize that you want to get help from companies like cloud-based partners, for example, to help with that as early as possible, you know. Yeah, very, very, very much so. I mean, if these are complex issues. There are all sorts of different dimensions. And those organizations that think these issues through get the appropriate support, as you're quite rightly suggesting, and do that from an early stage rather than wait for things to go wrong and then start scratching their heads and thinking, oh, how can we resolve this problem? You know, it's much better to anticipate problems, head them off at the past, as it were. And that, to my mind, that's a key part of effective leadership. So, so that said, then, how confident are you that most companies will make a success of, of this particular transition? Uh, right. Well, I think that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question, really. <laughs> uh, yeah. Obviously, I haven't got a crystal ball. I can't uh, work it out. But what I would say is, the ones who are going to make a success of it are the ones who already have good leadership. They already have a positive culture one that's rooted in, in trust, one that involves empowering staff rather than exploiting them. And those are the organizations that will be ready to make the, the transition. Organizations that are not very good at managing their, their, their staff, there isn't a strong basis of effective leadership, then the extra hurdles, as it were, of making the transition to home-based working could be too much for them. I mean, the, the way I see it, and this is a key part of my approach to organizational life, is, you know, we're all familiar with the idea that an organization's most important resource is its human resources, people. But when it comes to human resources, I think where a lot of organizations go wrong is they focus on the resources bit and they don't focus on the human bit. Yeah, yeah. And if people feel they're just being treated as a resource, you know, that they're expendable, uh, they're just filling a slot in an organization. And if they weren't there, someone else would fill that slot. Yeah, sure. Um, and they feel that they're being exploited, then that demotivates people. It can generate sabotage, high turnover of staff, conflict, lack of creativity, lack of learning, a uh, lot of problems coming because people feel that they're just a resource. They don't matter. But if they're treated as human, they're treated as people, they're valued, they're supported, they're empowered, then they're more likely to go the extra mile. They're more likely to adjust to new situations with confidence and even enthusiasm and so on. So a lot will depend on how staff are treated in the first place. Are they a resource or are they just a resource or are they a human resource with the emphasis on human? Because if you emphasize the human, the resource bit largely takes care of itself. But you emphasize the resource bit, you alienate the human. And it comes back to that whole culture conversation, doesn't it, really? It's how the business is geared up and what you quite rightly say is how strong is that leadership already to pivot and change the culture in the, in the quickest amount of time, essentially. Because if you're still trying to slot this new way of working into your old culture, which is an office environment and you know teams of people across several floors, it's clearly not going to work. And you, it, you've got to have probably a more in-depth 
communication strategy as well, both internally and externally. And there's a great podcast within this series by communications expert Debbie Cat, uh, who delves into that in a little bit more detail. Uh, and we'd recommend going to listen to that because there's so much that leaders have to consider when talking about change of this magnitude for, for their organization. Now, if they fail to get that right, you know, how serious do you think the problems might be? Well, potentially very serious for a, for a variety of reasons. One is that a lot of organizations already struggle to recruit and retain good quality staff. Sure. And what's going to happen is if an organization makes the shift to remote home-based working and they make a mess of it, then they're going to have two problems there. The, the first problem is they're going to lose good staff because if I was working for an organization and I'm a valued member of staff, I want to stay with them, but then they say, right, you're going to have to work at home and they make a mess of that, then I'm going to start looking for jobs elsewhere. Yeah, where sure. I can perhaps be home-based, sorry, where I can be office-based or I can be home-based in a, in a way that works much better. So that's the first problem is retention. There's a danger that people will lose good staff. But then there's also the reputational damage that comes with that. If an organization gets a reputation for losing good staff, then it becomes a bit of a double whammy in a sense because it then becomes more difficult to replace the good, the good staff who've left with other good staff. Because if people are good, if they are competent, committed, yep. experienced employees, then they're likely to have a choice of employees that they can go to. They're going to be a, a scarce, valuable resource. So why would they want to go work for an organization that has a reputation for mishandling home-based working? So there's the two sides of the same coin in a sense, the retention side of things. And once you've lost people, there's then the recruitment. How do you do, deal with the reputational damage? There are also problems around productivity, around quality and quantity of work. If people have lost, for example, their sense of teamwork and camaraderie that kept them going, because that hasn't been replaced in a virtual way, I mean, it's just a case of on a Friday, you're working in an office in a team with lots of support, and from the Monday, you're working at home without that camaraderie, without that support, and it hasn't mm. been replaced in a virtual way, because that can be done. You know, there are ways and means. Yeah. of maintaining the camaraderie or, uh, at a distance, as it were, doing that um, virtually. But well, we've seen people, you know, we've seen organisations this year have, you know, kind of Friday socials across Zoom, quiz days or quiz nights. It's so important, you know, that mustn't be overlooked. You know, you've got to find some ways to connect with the staff, even though it's it's remote, right? Yeah, very much so. I mean, you, you, you mentioned communication a moment ago. And for me, communication and culture are closely linked because a, a culture, in a sense, is a form of communication. The culture gives you messages. It basically says to you, this is what we expect of you. Sure. This is what the, the norm is in this uh, context. So that's a communication issue in itself. Coming back to this theme of uh, productivity, if, as a result of the switch to home-based working, people feel that they don't have the support, they don't have that camaraderie, they don't belong. They don't have a sense of connection to their em employers. Then it stands to reason that both quality and quantity of work are going to suffer. And then the other set of problems as well is something we touched on a moment ago, which is well-being. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. There's all sorts of problems potentially there in terms of uh, stress, anxiety, depression, things that don't necessarily apply where people are supporting one another, where people have this sense of belonging and connection. But if people don't have that sense of belonging and connection, they feel disconnected, they feel alienated, then that can feed stress, anxiety, depression, and so on. And significantly, if they're home-based, there's nobody who's likely to notice these in the early stages and nip them in the bud. You know, for example, if you and I were working in the same office and you notice that I seem to be more anxious than usual, usual, I seem a bit depressed, then you might say, let's have a cup of coffee, let's talk things through. Or if you're in your home and I'm in my home and you're not seeing that, then uh, that needs to be addressed. So there needs to be, as we say, these ways of replacing the value of being in office in another way, rather than, you know, virtually, for example, rather than just lose them. It's a great point, Neil. I think it's worth remembering for leaders, the success of your organization or your organization in general is only as good as the people you have working within it and the processes that you have in place, because those are the two fundamental areas of success, right? So you need to invest in those people. You need to adapt the processes that are going to work for this new normal, this new way of working, pandemic or no pandemic. And people might be listening to this in 2022, 2023. And you may have already told the future about, you know, the trend in remote working. But if a company is still peddling the same processes as they did in 2019, well, they're probably not going to be getting very far today. And that's the point. So invest in your people, invest in changing the culture, but also invest in changing the processes for your organization that have adapted with those people changes and culture changes. That said, what advice would you give to a management team today that's about to embark on remote working as a change for good, essentially? Yeah, okay. Well, I suppose there's a number of things. Uh, First of all, I say, be clear about what your current strengths and weaknesses are in terms of your culture, because any culture will have strengths and weaknesses. You know, there's no such thing as a totally positive culture or a totally negative culture. There will be um, benefits and costs, advantages, disadvantages. Now, because culture is something that people tend to take for granted, by its very nature, it's, you know, it's like the wallpaper. You just don't notice it, even though it's there all the time. So uh, part of what I've um, been doing as a consultant over the years is helping people to identify what their culture is, to look at what are the taken for granted assumptions, what are the unwritten rules, what are these habits that are so powerful, and so on. Because if you're not clear what those are, then when you make the transition, those aspects of the culture may no longer apply. Of course, if we look back historically, there are all sorts of cases on record of organizations that have failed because their culture didn't change to suit changing circumstances. And a classic example of this, of course, is Kodak. At one point, anything to do with photography was to do with Kodak. You know, they were the, the big name in photography. They had a huge market share in terms of photography. But when digital cameras came along, they were slow in making the transition and to stick with traditional photography because that was their great strength. 
So their culture didn't adapt to the new circumstances. And now Kodak are still around, but they're fairly small in the overall photography marketplace. I think they just make paper really now, don't they? That's about it. Well, yeah, it's a very limited considering how things used to be. So people have to adapt. The culture has to adapt. Now, this is one of the difficulties because by its very nature, a culture tends to be conservative with a small C. You know, it tends to <clears throat> want to keep things as they are. So when there are significant changes and the culture doesn't change, then that's when the trouble starts. So first of all, leaders need to know what is the culture, analyze it, break it down into its component parts. And then link to that, secondly, is they need to be clear about what are the positives of that culture that will be helpful in the new era, what are the negatives that could be a problem in the new era. So I tend, in my work, I tend to talk about analysis and evaluation. So analysis means what is the culture, break it down into its component parts, be clear about it, make it explicit. And then the evaluation bit is identify what are the strong points that we want to reinforce and build on what are the negative points that we need to reduce or um, preferably eliminate altogether? And then that links in then to the point I made before, which I think is crucial, is to focus on the people issues, focus on the human resources, not the human resources. Yeah, the emphasis has to be on the human, not on the resources. And then last but not least, I echo the point you made uh, before, is to uh, seek advice. There are organizations like cloud-based partners that you mentioned before who offer a sort of transition services that can be of uh, great value and worth investing in. Um, so in a nutshell, I think it, it comes back to get the people issues right. That's what really, really counts. Yeah, absolutely. People and processes to gear up the company for future success. No yeah. doubt about it. But also don't be afraid to get that help. It's not a weakness getting help, like, you know, in any, any anything in life, really. You need to get the experts in that are going to help shore up your success for the long term. And let's face it, you know, leaders in any size organization are busy. They've got a lot to do. Um, you know, they're focused on delivery and, and you know, customer service and keeping the business, the day-to-day -day cogs of the business running. To deal with a complete culture shift and a complete change to the way employees are working on a day-to-day -day basis, that goes above and beyond what leaders are generally doing as part of the norm. So get that help in, speak to people like cloud-based partners, bring them in as a consultant that can run with this this particular project and, and let them do some of this heavy lifting for you. Because otherwise, if you try and take this on within your existing leadership team, something has to give. So, you know, would, I think what I'm really reading between the lines here is there's a lot to do, there's a lot to consider uh, at all aspects of the organization and just get help. Yeah, yeah, very much. I think that's particularly important as well when you talk about cultural issues, because I, I don't know if you come across the saying that the fish is the last to see the water. In other words, if you're part of a culture, it's very difficult to see that culture because you're in it. It's shaping your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, in a sense, filtered through that culture. So when I come along, for example, as a consultant, say to people, well, what exactly is your culture? Tell me what it is. The initial reaction is a blank stare because they're so, you know, immersed in the water like a fish that they can't see it. Sure, um, sure. So I then have to help them. I've got various tools that I can use to help them actually 
make that culture explicit so they can deal with it. So getting help with what is basically a culture shift is uh, is really important because uh, an, an independent perspective on the situation can help people to see things that they just normally take for granted because that's and that's not a criticism of them that's how cultures work yeah um, yeah is you just you learn to take things for granted you couldn't function if if you were questioning everything you couldn't function you have to take certain things for granted and those things you take for granted then sort of coalesce as it were into a, a culture and, and that's what needs to be addressed fascinating stuff uh, i love that analogy dr neil thompson thank you so much for coming on to the remote working podcast today you're welcome thank you Thank you for listening to the Remote Working Podcast, brought to you by Cloudbase.